Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Fiona Narduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. The sun is shining, so, you know, that's good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm fine. I am watching a wood pigeon. They're always quite fat, so I was going to say a fat wood pigeon, but I think that's almost like a kind of a, a tautology they're nicely plump aren't they wood pigeons they're very yeah. rounded yeah so he's waddling along the garden path so I can't complain am I boring you Theo do you, do you need do you need <laughs> something else to look at while we're talking <laughs> well I can't see you so I've got to look at something that's true <laughs> uh, anyway Lucy we've had a couple of letters this week um from listeners uh, do you want to tell us about about those? Yes. Well, remember a few weeks ago we were celebrating our our wonderful listeners because they were sending in um, their versions of our theme tune, and so we we played some of those. And this week we've we've had some communications. Uh, a lovely, very thoughtful letter about um, from someone who was. Um, Responding to lots of things we talked about, actually, including um, Samuel Beckett and particularly the idea about re-readings and uh, also a letter from someone who uh, talked about, um, after talking about Dungeons and Dragons last week, I think Camille mentioned a bed that she made from the beards of defeated kings and we all said... Oh, with cushions, yes, stuffed with bits yeah. of beard. <laughs> and we all thought that would be terribly uncomfortable. But um, uh, apparently that has a literary history as well because um, in Arthurian stories there were coats made from the beards of defeated kings and their owners attempted to sort of claim... Arthur's beards as one of them, which uh, I was thinking about. That's exactly what I would do. If you had a big cape with lots of beards of the people that you defeated, you'd go, yeah, that that's Arthur there. Yeah, I beat him. I mean, that would be very uncomfortable. I think it's beginning to sound a bit more like mortification of the flesh stuff. I mean, maybe, but it's, it's not easy being a leader. <laughs> it's not. It's not indeed. I imagine. <laughs> right. Well, um, coming up on this week's show, Stevie Smith, a poet of fatal miscommunication, her famous line, not waving, but drowning, died 50 years ago this month. A new adaptation of her work sees the actor Juliet Stevenson embody this awkward and mesmerising poet who seems determined to confound. Noreen Masood will tell us more. And we have a new poem by Paul Muldoon, read by the poet himself to mark 400 years since the birth of Andrew Marvell. But first, exactly 200 years ago in the Peloponnese, a ferocious uprising began with Greek peasants taking arms against their Ottoman rulers. And this culminated eventually in Greek independence. The Greek War of Independence was perhaps the earliest triumph of nationalism, writes Mark Mazower in this week's TLS. A nationalism of the sort defined by Lord Acton as the idea that nations would not be governed by foreigners. In that sense, Mazower says, the Greek case was a forerunner in the political struggles that transformed the map of Europe and created the world we inhabit today. Now, there is pomp, ceremony, and industry of commemorative mugs and fridge magnets, but this was not always so. Before pride came score-settling, indifference, and ideological piggyback riding. 
And as is always the way, the real story is far more complicated than any of those narrative frames allow. So today we're going to look at the history of the history and hear the story of Greek independence told in new, more material ways. Mark Mazawa joins us on the line now to guide us. Mark, hello and thanks for joining us. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, so I've sketched the very, very basics there, but I wonder if you might briefly put us a little more in the frame of 1821 and its immediate aftermath. Because, I mean, I said I said the odds were against the Greeks, and that's a pretty massive understatement, really. It, and that aspect is important, uh, that mismatch, because it became such a powerful part of the myth. Yes, it's a very complicated story, but the essence of it, I think, is quite simple. In 1821, 200 years ago, Europe was essentially a continent of empires, and the southeast of Europe was a part of the Ottoman Empire that had ruled it for many centuries and was one of Europe's great states. And when the Greek Revolution began as a kind of peasant insurgency, you would have had to say that the odds were entirely against the Greeks uh, because there was not many of them. Uh, they were poorly armed, although they had some ships. And they were facing the resources of not the most powerful state in Europe, but a very significant powerful state with a well-established bureaucracy. And in fact, nobody at the time believed that the Greeks could pull this off by themselves. And arguably, even the organizers of the revolution didn't because they were counting on the Russian army to come in and help them, which didn't happen. And yet somehow, over the course of that decade, they hung on and they hung on and they eventually won their independence at the end of the 1820s. And what were the first attempts then to chronicle the events? You mentioned a, uh, a French historian in particular. I think one of the striking features of the 1820s across Europe is that uh, ordinary people have a very profound historical consciousness. They have a consciousness of living in history and they have a consciousness of their capacity to make history. This was something new. I think it was a product of Napoleon and the example that he had set and the experience of living through the Napoleonic Wars. And so one of the very striking features of this is that as soon as the fighting starts, everybody's sort of saying to themselves, we're making history. We'd better chronicle it. We'd better record it. They're sort of playing out these parts before the audience of the present, but the audience of the future as well. And in particular, there is a man in the French consulate in Smyrna called Raphael. Um, who starts to chronicle this. And in fact, he writes the first volume of his History of the Revolution in 1822, which means he must have substantially completed it at the end of 1821. And he goes on to write another two volumes and a history of the Greeks before he is killed fighting for the Greeks outside Athens. But he's just the first. There, there are uh, many people who go into print while the war is going on, writing histories of the war. So the idea that this is a subject worthy of the historian is kind of hardwired into it from the beginning. But that, um, I mean, that that kind of real time chronicling, um, that was to to a degree that was sort of flooded out, wasn't it, by the deluge of another kind of writing that followed. You, you describe a sort of as the printing press cranked up. It was almost more about score settling and, and stabbing each other in the back and, and accusations. Well, the, the printing press was new. It wasn't new to the Greeks, but it was new to Greece. Under the Ottomans, there had been no printing presses. And so when Greece becomes independent and the Kingdom of Greece is established and gets going from 1833 onwards, printing presses are established, there are newspapers, and the Greeks fall in love with the printed word. Many of the protagonists in the war of independence or the revolution, we can talk about what the proper term for it is, had more or less spent as much time fighting each other as they had fighting the Ottomans. And once the war was over, they continued to settle their scores with each other, this time in print. And so the early decades of the historiography of the Greek war of independence are really uh, a kind of score settling and uh, in, in which somebody defends the honor of his island or his region against the others. Uh, and so now we come back to this and we have this extraordinary material that's written by people who are in the middle of it, who knew many things that 
would otherwise be forgotten, but who were incredibly partisan. Can I just ask about the the effect uh, of the of the revolution and the, and the war of independence on the on the rest of Europe? Because I mean, it's a possibility, isn't there, that it was sort of influenced by the French Revolution and then. Um, as you said, the Napoleonic Wars, but it was it was very, am I right in thinking it was sort of taken up? I mean, that's where Byron went, isn't he? And, and, and nobly died in the Greek cause. Byron's life and especially Byron's death were absolutely instrumental in Europeanizing the conflict. The idea of further revolutions in Europe was anathema to the powers who were settling the peace after the defeat of Napoleon in 1815. And so when revolutionary activity emerged across Southern Europe in 1820, in Spain, in Naples, in Piedmont, and then in Greece, and of course there there was other revolutionary activity going on in South America in the Spanish colonies, uh, the powers reacted uh, vehemently against, uh, against this and tried to stamp it out. And so the climate of diplomacy in 1820 and 21 was fervently anti-revolutionary and nationalism was part of the revolutionary sentiment that they feared. The achievement of the Greeks was to smash this approach, to smash the Holy Alliance, the coalition of great powers that was defending this approach, uh, and create a new coalition around the idea of a kind of guided intervention that would allow the, the Greek nation to emerge. And of course, the Italians and the Poles and the Hungarians and many other nationally minded groups uh, saw Greece and what the Greeks had done as a kind of example for them. They came and fought in Greece. And then later, uh, they took refuge in Greece when their own struggles fizzled out or failed. So Greece became a kind of sanctuary for political exiles. But it was really the precursor, the model of all the great national uprisings and revolutions that punctuated the 19th century. And in a sense, the diplomacy that created Greece was the model for the diplomacy after the First World War that turned Europe into a continent of nation states. So in in terms of its international repercussions, I think it was um, an event of decisive international importance. And so, I mean, you would think then that in the immediate aftermath of it, the new Greek state would, would see it as very important to frame the way the story, the history w- was told. But in, in reality, in the aftermath, the Greek state doesn't seem to have played much, much of a role at all in, in how the history was told. It was, it was more left to uh, individuals. You mentioned a young researcher collector called Janis uh, Vlakoyanis. Well, the thing to remember is that the Greeks win their independence, but it's a very kind of odd winning of independence. It's sort of half given to them by the European powers. And the deal is you'll get your independence, but it'll come in the shape of a Bavarian king. And the Bavarian king and his entourage were not great supporters of the idea of revolution. And so they they were very suspicious about many aspects of the struggle that had in fact brought, brought Otto his throne. And so they had a very ambivalent attitude to the revolution. And also they knew that as far as Europe was concerned, the real cultural capital lay not in talking up the events of 1821, but in going on and on about ancient Greece and how you could now come to Athens and see the Parthenon and the Parthenon was cleared of its military remains. The Acropolis had always been a military garrison. It had not had a great symbolic power. And they clear off the garrison and they and they demolish the Ottoman village up there and they demolish the mosque up there and they turn it into a kind of shrine to Europe's vision of where it comes from. So the cultural capital for the Greek state lies in catering to Europe's love affair with ancient Greece. And meanwhile, the history work is being done elsewhere by, by amateurs or by foreigners. And the Greek ministries, if they're not neglecting their archives or throwing them away. As you say, it's left to a a few passionate amateurs to go around the scrap heaps and collect them. And it's not until 1915 that the Greeks actually get round to establishing a state archive. It's a fascinating insight as well into the idea that that, that, that having the Parthenon and the Acropolis as the seat of Western civilization, they only actually started really sort of selling that, flogging that, as you say, really quite recently. 
oh, there is a struggle for the part for the Acropolis, which is a military struggle uh, between the Ottomans and the Greeks. And the Acropolis is a military fortification and it has a all the amenities that are necessary to keep a small garrison up there permanently. And its function is to be the garrison for the town of Athens. It is, it is not, yes, you get the odd traveler coming through. And if you're Lord Elgin, you hire some laborers to lever off choice bits of marble and walk <laughs> yes. into the British Museum. We can get into that if we, we don't have, have time, to. I don't think. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> there, there's a wonderful engraving uh, um, in the in the book of a man called uh, Dodwell of this actually happening, of the workmen standing up there on the pediment, levering off the sculptures and lowering them to the ground. But that's what it had been. But the minute the Bavarians come in, and they decide that Athens will be the capital, they embark upon plans uh, in which they are going to essentially demolish everything that is post-classical on the Acropolis to free up the vision so of the visitor so that the 19th or 20th century European tourist has a completely unmediated vision of the ancient past that is now somehow stripped of all the excrescences of the intervening years, because there, there were medieval remains, there was an important medieval tower, there were many small, humble uh, homes up there, there was of course a mosque, um, and many of these things have been built on and around the, the great temples, and all of this is stripped and demolished and the earth is thrown over the side of the Acropolis down, down the slopes. And so if you look at the first drawings of the Acropolis from the 1830s, you see this whole fortification system that by 1880 or 1900 has vanished. When Virginia Woolf goes or when Sigmund Freud goes, they see nothing but the ancient site, which is what we see today. It's fascinating that the, the force with which history is, is written and rewritten. Um, I, I suppose the the, the mood, the way of, of, of framing things changed again as we enter the, as we reach the fascist period. I called it ideological piggyback riding earlier, but I think it's it's less less playful than, than that made it sound. Um, what, what was the, the drive here was a very clear one to kind of talk up the heroism and to draw a very clear line between the two movements, so to speak. Yeah, well, Greece was a very polarised country in the 20th century. For much of the 20th century, there was bitter conflict between left and right in Greece. As I'm sure you know, there was an explosive civil war after the Nazi occupation. The resistance during the Nazi occupation had explicitly looked back to the heroism of the Greeks fighting the Turks in 1821 as a kind of model to uh, promote its own uh, nationalist credentials. Um, and uh, they were building on the first socialist historians of 1821, who said that what really mattered in 1821 was class struggle, was economic interest and so on. And they had a point, this had been completely neglected. And then contrary to that, there was, if you like, an anti-communist version of 1821, which was all about great mustachioed heroes who were devoutly orthodox and kind of, poster boys for some kind of macho fascist ideal. And, and I'm, I'm really caricaturing a, a school which in fact had some very good historians in it. But when you get to the period in which Greece falls under the power of the colonel's dictatorship between 1967 and 1974, what you end up with is a kind of fascist kitsch in which these army colonels embrace the memory of 1821. Uh, and they sort of ram it down everybody's throats. It's all over school, it's all over the marches, it's all over anniversaries. There was a great irony in this, which was that the Greeks had fought in 1821 with no regular army. In fact, the thing that they all loathed, all the Capitans and the, and, and the warriors loathed as they were fighting one another, was the idea that there should be a regular army. And here was this military dictatorship in 1967, the regular army officers, embracing the memory of these guys who would have shot them if they'd had the chance. And uh, you mentioned um, to kind of give a sense of that commemoration machine, how in 1971, the 150th anniversary of the uprising, more than 300 books were published on, on the subject. And um, it, within that context, you also mentioned a historian called Despoina Temeli Catifori, who sounds like a formidable figure and she was researching and writing during the junta but she wasn't researching and writing along the lines that they would have liked. 
Yes. Uh, so the the Hunza wrap themselves in the flag, and they and they they publish an immense amount. But of course, some of it is actually quite good, and some of it is quite valuable. And there are professional historians working on this. Um, the real problem after 1974 is that when they fall, they really put most people off, including most historians, off the whole subject of 1821 and the revolution. And one of the one of the few people who hadn't been put off was this remarkable historian called Despina Themili Catifori, who had been working quietly away under the junta on the problem of piracy and the Greek merchant fleet. And she and others around her had published under the junta, and then they continued to publish in the intervening years. And then something, I think, very important happened in the 1990s, which was which was this, when the junta fell, a whole young generation of Greek social scientists came back to Greece who had fled into exile. They were mostly leftists because they'd gone to Paris or they'd gone to Munich or they'd gone to Berlin or they'd gone to London. Um, and the university system in Greece over the last 30, 40 decades expanded enormously. And so the study of history and the writing of history in Greece in the last 30 years has been, uh, 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 has flourished. Um, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, people started getting interested in 1821 again. They, they, it's a, it, they had had enough time to get over the winter. Um, and the result is now that we have the 200th anniversary of the uprising. I think we're in a very different place from where we were in 1971, where if you were doing good work, you were really in a minority and there was this awful publicity machine that the hunter was, was sort of megaphoning at the top of its voice. Um, now there's really an immense amount of very serious work that's, that's being done, much of it in Greek, most of it in Greek, but actually quite a lot of it available in English and French as well. And suddenly whole new areas of this subject that we thought was dead and buried are, are, are revealing themselves to be completely uh, understudied. Um, the, 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 whole, the whole question of what the Ottomans thought of 1821 is really scarcely studied and is now being studied for the first time. You give such a tremendous impression in, in this piece and just hearing you talk now of such a, a kind of pulsating historical field in Greece full of vigour and exciting new directions and collaborations. Yes, I, I, it really is. I mean, it's deeply impressive. You, you, you know, when one's in England, one doesn't necessarily know very much about what is going on in the field of scholarship in in Portugal or Liechtenstein or Sweden or Greece. The, a, a, the fact of the matter is in, in, in Greece at the moment, there's a very remarkable situation in, in which there's huge general interest on the part of the public in the country's own history and very high quality research being done in the universities by I would say a young generation of scholars, two or three generations of scholars perhaps. Um, I, I, I'll give you one, one example about many, this extraordinary research project that was carried out from the universities of Corfu and Crete into shipping in the Mediterranean in the 18th century, in which a team of about 20 international researchers scoured every conceivable archive across the Mediterranean uh, to put together a picture of shipping and trade in the 18th century. And of course, shipping is, is one of the few areas where ordinary people leave their mark on paper. Uh, in the 18th century. And so it, it becomes even more than just a study of, of the world of shipping. It becomes a story of mobility of people uh, uh, across the ocean. Um, remarkable, remarkable work that has produced two large volumes of collected essays. Um, it's an exciting time for historians in Greece, I think. Um, well, you've made that very, very clear indeed. Thank you very much, Mark Mazawas, for talking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Still to come on the show, a new poem by Paul Muldoon to mark 400 years since the birth of Andrew Marvell, and Stevie Smith, a new adaptation stages the unsettling power of this poet of the too present and too much. 
And if you have enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, this is a gentle reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcast and you'll never miss an episode. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, please do drop us a line at letters at the hyphen tls.co.uk. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we get to Stevie Smith, we're marking 400 years since the birth of Andrew Marvell. In this week's TLS, we have three new poems, all responses to Marvell, all singing with rhyming couplets to make the master proud by Angela Layton, Will Harris and Paul Muldoon, who's with us now to read his own contribution. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, I wonder, do you remember your first encounter with Marvell? I do indeed. I read Andrew Marvel or Marvell, depending on where you come from, as a teenager. And uh, I actually read him first in the Metaphysical Poets, the great anthology of the Metaphysicals, edited by Helen Gardner. And uh, I, I read him there with uh, uh, Don, of course, uh, and... Uh, the various other great poets of that era, George Herbert Interalia. But Marvell was always a, a hero. Um, you know, I, I, one of my favorite poems then, and it has stayed with me ever since, is To His Coy Mistress, one of the great poems in the English language, and probably a few others besides. So I love his wit and uh, his um, absolutely boundless technical expertise. I mean, he really is quite remarkable in that regard. They were all remarkable, of course, but uh, Marvel is, is particularly so. Um, I'm going to pick you up on a, on a tiny point there that you just, you just mentioned in passing. You said Marvel or Marvel, depending on where you come from. Um, and Lucy and I were talking about this earlier because she, she said she wasn't sure. And I said, oh, I've, I think I've only ever heard Marvel. What, what, what's the breakdown then? Because, I mean, is it a bit like scone and, and scone and scone? Because I would say scone. So I don't know now if I need to realign my Marvel Marvel. Well, some people say Marvel. And I think there are one or two puns in his own work that suggest that uh, Marvel, Marvel was a was a, a, an appropriate uh, pronunciation of it, but honestly, <laughs> we're talking about one of the great poets uh, of the English language. Well, I, I see why he would prefer Marvel. Um, so um, I said I said just now in in my little introduction that these poems are responses 
uh, to him. Yours is quite explicitly so, isn't it? I mean, his the mower to the glowworms is met now with your the glowworm to the mower. Can you say what drew you to this one in particular? Is it the endurance of those foolish fires, or what? What did you want to capture or return to here? Well, the glowworm uh, is funnily enough is a feature of life that I hadn't really known intimately when I lived in Ireland. Um, but since I moved to the US about 35 years ago, the lightning bug, as uh, the glowworm is known in this part of the world, is really a very common feature and a beautiful, beautiful aspect of life. Uh, I did a few years ago uh, write a poem in which I compared uh, the lightning bug to the little green light on a, a computer. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm always interested in finding um, new similes and metaphors in the world. I think that's one of the things that poets do. And it's certainly one of the things that uh, Marvel and co uh, were interested in. I mean, they excel in the uh, astonishing, often long drawn out, uh, simile. So I decided, uh, I, I, well, actually, I thought, what would Marvel do under these circumstances? <laughs> and uh, not, that I, not that I come anywhere close to what he would have been capable of, but I did enjoy the idea of just switching things around and seeing what would happen if the roles were reversed, as it were. Um, right. Well, Paul, let's have your poem then, please. The glowworm to the mower. Since you're unlikely to astound yourself by having more to save than hay, small wonder you've not found why wave upon successive wave would summon far inland sea sounds from a dull scythe or sickle. When Juliana and you downed tools to lunch on cheese and pickles, atop the triangular mound with its outcrop of hairy vetch, for which your meadow is renowned, it must have felt like the home stretch to a safe harbour. Black whorehound in the shuck, the sun a sea gong. All afternoon you would expound on how a moor must be strong while Juliana, tightly wound as ever, slowly went off script, the vetch garland with which she's crowned, having by dusk completely slipped, the ties by which lovers are bound also substantially weakened. We mourn all those poor souls who've drowned because our own inconstant beacons have led to their running aground. Bear in mind, it's by and from you, and not the other way around. We glowworms steer and take our cue. Paul Muldoon, thank you. Thank you very much indeed. You may have picked up in the background some atmospheric um, seagulls on my roof. <laughs> Speaking of the sea for you. Um, that was that was a lovely reading. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Mind yourselves. Paul Muldoon's poem and those by Angela Layton and Will Harris are in this week's issue of the TLS in print, online and in the app edition. Now, though, from one poet of Yorkshire's East Riding to another, Stevie Smith, Lucy Dallas, over to you. Why would you want to listen to poetry that made you feel awkward, unsettled, whose rhythm was nearly but not quite right, illustrated with odd drawings without an obvious connection, chanted to a half-remembered tune? Because that poetry is by Stevie Smith and because it has power and wit and great depth of feeling behind, or perhaps because of, that very awkwardness. Noreen Masood, whose book on Stevie Smith is coming out later this year, has written about a performance of Smith's poetry, and we're delighted that she's here to talk about it with us. Noreen, many thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Um, can you tell us about the event you reviewed, the, the format and the, the performance element of it, please? Sure. So the event was um, Dead Poets Live 
Black March, which is named after one of Stevie Smith's poems, Black March. Um, and it sort of starred James, James Lieber, who wrote the, the script, and Juliet Stevenson. And Stevenson was playing Smith and reading out some of Smith's poems, alternating with kind of um, remarks that are culled from Smith's novels, her interviews, and so on. And interspersed with those, James Lever interjects and explains little bits about Stevie Smith's life and, and offer, passes quite a lot of critical comment on her commentary on her poetry. Um, so it's sort of a dialogue, but a strange one in which James is addressing the audience, but partly Stevenson, and Stevenson isn't necessarily addressing anyone. So already there were kind of weird, missed encounters going on in a very Smithish way, I think, in this performance. And Stevenson, so you, I mean, she's she's playing Stevie Smith in this adaptation. She's the latest uh, in a series of, of 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 people to take on the role. I think most famously, Glenda Glenda Jackson did. Yes, it's really lovely watching all the different Smiths. Um, so Jackson in the nineteen seventy eight film is is quite a little bit austere, but mostly kind of melancholy, a little bit wistful. Um, Zoe Wanamaker was Smith, um, I think, in twenty fifteen. Uh, when Hugh Whitemore's play Stevie was brought back. Um, she was very mischievous. Um, and what really struck me about this Smith by Stevenson was how sharp she was, abs looking you dead in the eye, reciting snappily with um, sort of indignant emphasis on every syllable. I felt quite sort of, I sort of shriveled up in my chair guiltily as I watched. Um, it was extraordinary. And again, you know, a completely valid way of, of playing Smith, who I think was absolutely capable of that kind of affect. Um, well, we have a clip of Juliet Stevenson as Stevie Smith here, in fact, taken from Dead Poets Live, uh, a reading of To the Tune of the Coventry Carol. The nearly right, and yet not quite in love, is wholly evil. And every heart that loves in part is mortgaged to the devil. I loved, or thought I loved in sort. Was this to love akin? To take the best and leave the rest and let the devil in? Oh, lovers true, and others too, whose best is only better. Take my advice, shun compromise, forget him and forget her. So, um, Noreen, you say, and you say that um, when people stage adaptations of Stevie Smith involving her life, there is often an inevitable extra man there, as, as James Lever uh, seems to be playing in this one, either to interview her or comment on her or mediate her in some way. Why, why do you think this is? Yeah, it's a strange tradition. So Smith herself um, incorporates it, I think. She has a radio play called A Turn Outside from 1959, where she's talking to a mysterious interlocutor um, who is revealed, and again, male, very kind of paternal and a little bit condescending, who's revealed at the end to be death, and he takes her outside. So they have the extra man there. And then in Hugh Whitemore's play in 1977, there is the, the characters of Stevie, her aunt, and the man, who sort of comments from the side. And here, you know, Dead Poets Live is, is participating in that tradition. And I, I think there are there are sympathetic and unsympathetic readings of that, aren't there? And my, my, my instinctive response is, is to feel that this is a way of sort of a kind of necessary translator of Smith or a feeling that a translator might be necessary to kind of mediate Smith and apologise for her um, as, as one is encountering her. Yeah, and I I'm, I'm find myself suspicious of, of that impulse. Because, well, because she, she famously, as you say, lived in a house of female habitation and she... Well, she did have relationships with men, didn't she? They didn't yes. seem to be the most important ones of her life. And maybe maybe that's difficult for, I don't know, I don't, for some reason that seems difficult for people to deal with. I think so. I think it's definitely a sense of kind of balancing it out. Or, you know, I think that's, that, that might well be the justification anyway, or um, feelings about making things more accessible. And I think we should think really hard about why we need 
a man to make things accessible. But of course, I could just be being cruel here. Um, but I think one of the joys of many of Smith's poems is that one finds oneself in a space where men are irrelevant. She has one poem where the main character's mother wants her to get off with the right sort of chap. Um, but instead, she the, the, the protagonist puts on a hat and is taken away to a desert island where there are no men. <laughs> in another poem, um, a little girl, bored by listening to visitors talking, runs through the French windows and into the wilds and meets a beautiful naked lady and stays there with her forever. Over and over again, we have Smith sort of creating spaces without men or, you know, and those could be either places of solitude or places with women. And I think, yeah, I, I would be interested to see whether future productions sort of um, take advantage of that more, sort of make more of that, mm. that femaleness. Um, and you talk as well about the awkwardness in the performance and say that this seems right because that's often the feeling that her work provokes. I've got two rather um, horrible questions here relating to that, I'm afraid. So how does she, as a poet, create this feeling and why do you think she does it? Mm. I can only speak for for what I, I think <laughs> and many may agree with, disagree with me. Um, lots of ways in which the awkwardness is created. And one of them is a kind of, um, you might start off in one place with the poem. You might start in perhaps a space of comedy. And then as the poem goes on, you're sort of drawn imperceptibly into a space of tragedy. And you don't quite know when that's changed, like when the transition happened. Uh, and that's quite awkward. Um, also stuff with the form as well. You've got rhymes that aren't quite right, a meter that isn't quite right. You have kind of, uh, there's another poem which says in its subtitle that it's set to boys and girls come out to play, but that only works at something like the first three lines. Then it kind of wanders away from that, from that meter. So it's it's almost like somebody carrying lots and lots of plates and dropping some and apologising and getting distracted and bumping into things. Um, and it's not just a kind of staging of a kind of poetic discombobulation, but also it's very discombobulating for the reader, where every time one feels one has a sort of safe platform from which to read Smith, that's turned upside down, that's lost. So you, you end a Smith poem not really knowing where you've ended up. Um, and I, I, I just think that's, it's extraordinarily interesting for a few ways. And I suppose the main one is I think awkwardness is interesting. I, you know, one of the the things that Smith is always channeling, you know, in in her dress, in her drawings, is the kind of early teenage girl who is just growing into her new body, who, who's, you know, who, who all her limbs are the wrong size, her hands are the wrong size. There's this wonderful drawing of a girl standing with her hands straight out in front of her, and it's it's got a caption, "What should I do with my hands?" But what should I do with my hands? And I love it because um, it's exactly what a sort of gawky teenager does at a party, you know, perhaps perhaps an adult party, and she doesn't feel, feel quite at home there. Um, so there's something about adolescence, I think, and the awkwardness of adolescence in which Smith is very interested, but which he also finds very generative, I think, for her work. Something is happening in those, those early teenage years, which, which Smith uses as kind of um, a wellspring for her work. Yeah. And as you say, it's a it's a curious mix, and and there are a few poems, uh, as you say, that start out very funny, and then often end up somewhere very mm. bleak. Um, I was thinking about thoughts about the person from Porlock. I've always thought is is very much yes. like that. Um, and there's also the the shorter one um, you mentioned. Do take Muriel out. Mm. How do they treat that one in this show? Oh, uh, that's it's a very it's a very interesting one. Obviously, there was um, an interest in in making Smith relevant to our pandemic times, and Smith um, was very tired all the time. She she sort of thought of herself as someone who was constantly exhausted. She spent all her life in the suburbs with her aunt. Um, particularly towards the end of her aunt's life she spent a lot of time sort of in the house in a way that we are having to do now and had a kind of interest in solitude of the sort that many of us are experiencing during lockdown so in the in the performance as Stevenson reads do take Muriel out um we get scenes of of a sort of a woman in lockdown sort of going coming out of the shops alone wearing a, a surgical face mask and doing a jigsaw on her own with a glass of wine next to her yeah and I, I think I think there are legitimate links to be made with the way we're living now and the way that Smith lived although there's also there's much there's a lot of pleasure in Smith's solitude you know I don't know necessarily that we're meant to 
pity Muriel. But but also uh, the person the, the person being addressed to take Muriel out mm. is not, as we think, uh, some nice young man or somebody to draw her out of herself, is it? No, quite. Um, as the the the, um, the poem addresses. Um, somebody saying do take Muriel out she is looking so glum all her friends are gone and at the end it's revealed do take Muriel out although your name is death and that's a very interesting spanner to throw into the works when we're faced with a deadly pandemic um, and us going outside may actually mean death either for ourselves or for other people so again, we have an awkwardness here. We have like, what, what exactly are the politics or the allegiances of this juxtaposition? Um, and I think the performance sort of opts, it's quite, it is an awkward moment. The performance sort of cuts back to Juliet Stevenson's face for the last stanza. Um, I mean, yeah, what kind of imagery could um, justifiably be appended to that? Also, Noreen, you have to, um, as you do in your piece, can you please tell us about your encounter with the roller blind of Stevie Smith? The roller blind, yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> so when I just started my PhD, I think it was a year in, I was sort of, I was 25 and I, I went on my first ever archive trip to the Hull History Centre, Stevie Smith being born in Hull and living there till the age of three. They've got a wonderful Smith collection, including the original manuscript of the novel on yellow paper, whose paper is actually yellow. And I asked to see everything in the collection. Um, and I came into the room and saw that a, a, a long roll, long paper roll had been laid diagonally across a table, the map table. And I was directed over there um, and I began to unroll it I was very new to archive study, as I say, it was my first trip, and it seemed perfectly possible to me that that might be how you stored manuscripts, just bundled up together in a big roll of paper. But something else started to come out, some sort of things thick and, and brown. And I was sort of staggering under the weight of this huge thing, which was seven feet long. Um, and when I'd finally got it unrolled, it turned out to be a, a, a roller blind, seven feet by six feet, with... Um, a poem by Stevie Smith, a five-line poem written in, in thick black marker pen and dated 1969, 4th of February 1969. And that was it. And I, I had no idea that there was a blind in the archive. I hadn't even properly looked, really. I just said, I'd, I'd like everything by Smith, please. Um, and in my memory, although this is a, it dims at this point with sheer embarrassment, um, in my memory, the staff in the archive were very interested in this roller blind. And were, some of them had come out of a back room to watch. There were several of them lined up against the wall. And I felt very acutely the embarrassment, the awkwardness of having turned up and demanded this huge, heavy object. And I had to demonstrate that I knew what I was doing. So I sort of marched to the counter and asked for weights and a magnifying glass and inspected the blind solemnly from all angles and stood on a chair and took photographs of it from above, nodding. I think there was nodding. I think I nodded to myself knowingly and made little no noise. <laughs> oh, yes, the blind. Oh, yes, the, bl the famous blind. It was absolutely mortifying. And I took more photos of that blind than I did the manuscript of novel on yellow paper um, in the end, just... It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because when, when one meets a librarian, whenever one does any archive work, the librarians know so much more than you do. I get annoyed at um, people who claim to have discovered things in the archive often, because the librarians knew they were there. They've been working with these collections for years. You haven't discovered it. You've just read, <laughs> you've read the archivist's guide. Um, so, you know, as a scholar, one is almost a sort of, pretender to the the glory of the archivist knowledge you know and I, I just felt as a, as a first year PhD student I had to live up to them I had to prove myself worthy of being in the presence of these of these god creatures um, and you know I'm sure what I managed to do was um, make them laugh <laughs> I'm sure it happened I'm sure they have hundreds of people trooping through those doors regularly to panic over the blind and take photographs of it. <laughs> well, it's very tempting to go and do that very thing right now because you've said so. that. I think so. I think we should have a whole, we should send a whole procession of people um, to the Hull History Centre. I just love that um, this, this, this image of Stevie Smith sort of from beyond the grave forcing you and, and, and other scholars to kind of contort their bodies in awkwardness <laughs> yeah. just she's forcing this awkwardness upon you almost like a Bruce Nauman kind of you know you read the instructions and you find yourself contorting into these strange Absolutely. uncomfortable shapes I think she would have loved it 
was was that that wasn't the only version of the poem written on the blind was it it no. was just that this happened to be written by stevie smith so you were going to get it because it was written by stevie smith that's it anything any of i mean i i, I didn't i had no idea at this point that you could about the things that one can find in archives. You know, I thought it was all manuscripts. I was, I, I knew nothing. Well, you don't point, expect so. rollerblinds. No, you definitely don't expect rollerblinds. Locks of hair, sure, diaries, but rollerblinds. <laughs> um, so it would have been wonderful if that was the manuscript of the poem. What a, what an entrance Ooh. into the world for the poem. Um, but I think, I, I gather that she was at a party and it was like a party trick. She wrote out this poem on a rollerblind. Um, it certainly wasn't her rollerblind, so I hope the owner was all right with this transformation. Oh, I see. But then, so what you do is you roll it back up and then when someone comes around, you casually pull it down and say, oh, I had Stevie Smith here the other night. And then you've got the Stevie <laughs> Smith poem on your on your blind. Do you think exactly. that's the idea? I had Stevie Smith around and she defaced my property. <laughs> <Look>. <laughs> Such confidence to believe that that your, your graffiti can only improve a situation. I admire it. It probably did, though. Oh, yes. <laughs> Uh, 1969 yes that was was she'd she'd got nice and famous in the 60s so you know I expect it was a a nice thing for the owner of the blind to have Mm. well um that was a a wonderful and suitably um awkward anecdote um um, (laughs) (laughs) your words I I wouldn't dream of saying that you were awkward I'm only going on your account oh no very awkward yes but thank you very much for talking to us about Stevie Smith today it was a pleasure thank you so much That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Noreen Masood, Paul Muldoon and Mark Mazawa. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Ben Mitchell. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, a weekly series of in-depth interviews with high-profile figures examining how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. This week, businessman and chair of the Cultural Recovery Fund, Sir Damon Buffini, describes his journey from a Leicester council estate to being named the most powerful black man in Britain. A group of my peers who I thought I knew just decided that they'd make my life misery and they excluded me from sports societies, cocktail parties or everything. Couldn't really find out why they were doing it. I think one of my friends said, you know, the reason why they're doing it is because they don't think you're a real gentleman. Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson, Sir Damon Buffini, in his own words. Now available as a podcast. Listen on the Times Radio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.